0: And welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, December 8th, 2015. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I am very happy to be with you tonight. I'm joined by Corey Devos, who is handling the tech over at Integral Radio, and here next to me is Brett Walker, who uh, just uh, did the little playlist before the show and. My goodness, that Carmen McRae song. I know. Isn't that something? Didn't that create a, a mood? Yeah. A I m- mean, it's, he was pulling some songs from a, a show that we're putting together with Greg Thomas, who is a jazz uh, theorist, really, and uh, a, an integral theorist as well. And this is Carmen McRae, if you, if you were listening a few minutes before, uh, at age 70, you know, God bless her, she was 30 pounds overweight. She was in a sweatshirt. Her hair was pulled back. I mean, this is not the jazz babe of the 40s. And she's uh, singing in broad daylight at an outdoor festival in Japan. And oh, the transmission. So anyway, thank you, Brett, for Mm. that. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome. I really appreciate you being with us tonight. Uh, Tonight, we're going to do what we normally do here at the Daily Evolver and try to look at the events of our time through an integral lens. And tonight we're going to focus on the shootings in California, the terrorist attack in San Bernardino last week, and how it has very predictably sparked a backlash in the American culture that is really happening right now. We're in day three or four of it. And, you know, the highlights are, of course, Donald Trump uh, has called for a halt to Muslims entering the country. Uh, There's a big controversy as to what the U.S. role should be in response, how we should fight back militarily, culturally, uh, even in cyberspace. And that was, uh, of course, uh, laid out in Obama's speech on Sunday night and the response to that. Uh, So I'm going to look at all of that tonight and do the best I can to bring an integral sensibility to the whole thing. I want to give a special thank you for those of you who are listening here in real time tonight on Tuesday night. It's really wonderful to feel you with me in our non-local moment. If you are interested in participating in a discussion during the podcast, you can post your comments on Integral Radio's chat screen. And Brett will be keeping an eye on it if there are questions or observations that you would like me to address. And I would encourage you to do that. Again, this is all happening in real time. And one of the opportunities of the Daily Evolver is that we can have a conversation. I don't have all the answers, but we can sort it out together. And so, if, again, if you have some comments or questions, uh, please post them. Integral radio is a feature of Integral Life which is the world's leading integral web portal and community. And I do encourage you to check it out, IntegralLife.com. You can be a member for 99 bucks a year and it is well worth it. You can also find more of my stuff at dailyevolver.com. And we have a new website that we're sort of slowly publicizing because we're getting the kinks out. Uh, But please check it out and see what you think. And if there's any problems you run into, let us know. All right. So let's take a look. Brett, you know what we need is a sound effect about how we implement the integral lens. Really?
1: What did you have in mind? Like a
0: creaky machine or something that, you know, (laughs) where I'm turning the dial or something. Anyway, I don't know. We'll work on that.
1: Kind of like, like those Google Cardboard things
0: they say. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly you're going to look through this little device and see the world very differently. Well, since you mentioned it, I have to say, I bought five Google Cardboards for Christmas presents. They're amazing. They're, you know, less than 10 bucks. I got one free by being a subscriber to the New York Times. And it sat in my counter for several weeks before I finally was bored one day and put it together. And oh my goodness gracious. It was a taste of what is to come in terms of communication and entertainment. So, yeah, check it out. Cool. Yeah. All right. So let's do then turn our attention to this San Bernardino attack. And, you know, it's a new thing. And we human beings are very programmed to pay attention to what's new, particularly if it's negative. I mean, that's a, a evolutionary bias that we have that is very useful and productive and adaptive. And so let's look. This is really the first bona fide terror attack with the fingerprints of ISIS on American soil. Now, whether it's ISIS-inspired or ISIS-abetted, we don't know. But I have to say that day by day, it's looking more and more sort of diabolical, if you will, as to this young couple. He who was born here in the United States, she's Saudi Arabian, married. And one day last week, they decide to leave the company holiday party and come back armed to the teeth with automatic weapons, shoot 14 people after they dropped off the six-month-old baby at grandma's. And they got away for a couple of hours and then they were caught and, of course, obliterated. And it turns out that it could have been much worse they, they had quite an arsenal that they had developed. They had booby traps for first responders. They didn't work. They had material to make 12 pipe bombs. And the next day, ISIS tweeted out their congratulations and took credit for the whole thing. And it's the fog of war in a way. We, we really don't know. There's all kinds of conflicting stories and rumors. And every day, the FBI comes out with something new. And I was talking to my friend Maria about it, and we both just sort of ended up in that space that, you know, I think a lot of us end up with, with these kinds of things. And it's like, oh, what a mess, which, of course, it is. What a fucking mess. And, you know, it's discouraging, and it, it feels hopeless that this can happen here in the United States. And, you know, it's at this point that I have to say, I am so happy To have an evolutionary view, one that says that, yes, this is a mess, this is the current mess, in a world where there's one mess after the other, and a world in which there's no mess-free option. So there's always a mess. One of the things that is sort of a little hobby I have is to go back and look randomly at the front page of the New York Times throughout history, And there's always some war or consternation or some sort of killing or tragedy that's going on, and this is one of them. And what we can see from an integral perspective is that historically, this mess is less lethal than most, which is not to say that it wasn't 100% lethal to the 14 people who died in this attack, but which is to say... That's what, what's worse than 14 people is 15 people or 1,500 people or 1,000 people, which the latter of which would have been a good, a good day in World War II. But again, which is not to say that this is not a mess and that has to be addressed, but to simply put it in some perspective. Now, addressing this is the chief job of our national leaders, chief of whom is the president of the United States. And we'll talk about Obama's response. But what's also interesting is that this is an election year. We're less than a year away now, folks, from the U.S. presidential election. And of course, all of the people who want to be president have to weigh in on this. And most of them are Republicans. And let's just take a look at the range of responses that we see to this attack. So, On the far right, we have, of course, Donald Trump. He is bound and determined that there's nobody going to get to the right of him on anything that has to do with uh, immigration and uh, national security and basically ethnocentrism in general. And yesterday, he put out a statement. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, are aware of it. Uh, And I want to get it exact, so I'm going to read the first sentence. And it's, New York, New York. December 7th, 2015, Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. (laughs) I don't even kind of know what that means, especially the part our country's representatives figure out what's going on. It's uh, hilarious in in a sense, but it has set the bar uh, for what everybody has to respond to. And of course, one of the interesting things is that, to a person, all of the Republican representatives, all of the uh, uh, fellow candidates for the nomination have rejected that. Uh, the mildest, I think, was Ted Cruz, who said simply, I do not agree. But he was roundly rejected by Jeb Bush, who said he's deranged. Lindsey Graham, who said he's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. Uh, Paul Ryan, who's the new Speaker of the House, said, this is not what the party stands for, the Republican Party, and it's not what this country stands for. And even liberals, listen up, Dick Cheney criticized Trump and this statement for being un-American. As he said, it goes against everything we stand for and believe in. And that's... A really interesting statement, and one that I think that integral theory helps us to understand. Uh, in terms of the American ideal, for sure, it's true. Trump's policy is counter to our founding values of equality and freedom, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, as stated in a constitution, until we remember that, of course. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were written by many of the men who wrote it, all men, owned slaves. And from there, it just continues. American history is replete with discrimination based on all kinds of things. There was the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which outlawed all Chinese immigration, the Immigration Act of 1917 which barred homosexuals, epileptics, and a whole bunch of other undesirables. And of course, not to mention the internment of American citizens of Japanese descent in 1942 by the liberal icon, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And after that, Operation Wetback in the 1950s, which I hadn't heard about until Donald Trump brought that up a couple of weeks ago, which... Uh, involved rounding up thousands of Mexican immigrants who came in to work during World War II. And after World War II, they were rounded up and dropped unceremoniously on the other side of the border, where many of them died of starvation and heat and thirst. And so, you know, American history has a, a lot of examples of discrimination based on all sorts of things. But what we can see is that all of these happened in an America that was existing with a center of gravity that was traditional, or the amber altitude, if you're looking at our altitudes of development chart. Since then, the United States has evolved into a center of gravity modern country, or the orange altitude. And like all modern countries around the globe, You know, most of the countries in Western Europe, Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, most South American countries. It's a moving target. And, you know, you can argue one way or the other. But as countries become more and more fully modern in both the exteriors in terms of their modern technology, but also in terms of their interiors, this is where the quadrants come in handy, their interior consciousness, their cultural sensibility. However imperfectly implemented, there is a commitment that comes online naturally. It's part of the evolution of consciousness that all faiths and races are to be accorded basic human rights. So what we realize is that Trump's statement is not so much un-American as it is un-modern. It's unmodern. its anti american as America is in modern times, and it's Uh, unmodern for all other countries who are at that stage of development. So what's interesting is that we can sort of harumph at Trump for saying this, but at the same time, I think we need to stop and notice, at least, if not celebrate, that every other candidate, even in the Republican Party, has rejected this point of view. Now, that's not to say that Trump isn't evolutionarily potent. I think he actually is. He's the voice of a significant sliver of the American, particularly voting population, 20% or so, I'd say. These are people who are traditionalists. They are amber altitude and even early amber altitude in a lot of cases, which means that they're fundamentally nation-centric and even ethnocentric. And that is a Predictable and to be expected characteristic of that stage of development. There's a reflexive antipathy towards people who are not of our tribe at that stage. We think that our God is better than the other guy's God. We think that our country is a better country than the other guy's country, and and our culture is better than the other culture. And these people feel unseen and unheard. They're, they're majority, not college educated. Um, they're, you know basically culturally backward. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. And they, but there's a lot of them. They feel caricatured by green postmodern culture they think makes fun of them and doesn't understand them. They think green postmodern culture is weak and stupid. And I, you know, I love Trump. I mean, he's a genius at really playing that fiddle. Uh, And his big theme is crippled America, make America great again. America is in the thrall. America is currently governed by people who are, and these are his words, weak and stupid. And that is the view of the traditionalists. Uh, Now, these traditionalists have to toe a modernist line. When they're at work, they have to be politically correct um, in the public sphere. Everybody's equal, and if they don't sort of toe that line, they're ostracized or worse, sued. And they're sued by the government or you know some some uh, representative of the government. That the government is the enforcer. Their kids go to school where liberal values rule the day. They have to compete with people who get affirmative action. They see a world that is slipping away, but in their own families, at their own kitchen tables, among their own friends, churchgoers, among the people they trust, they're damn sick and tired of it. And this is a a statement that they really respond to. Uh, They want to take their country back and they want to make her great again. I mean, can you feel that a little bit? Don't you want to take America back to where she was great again? Of course, for most of us, we realize that while there is sort of an emotional response to that statement, that when we think about it, we realize that there was never such a time. But for those people who do think that, Donald Trump is their unambiguous champion. And, and this is the good news for us evolutionaries, he will lead them to abject defeat. There's no way. I've said this before. And I'm I'm like there's part of me hope that's like praying I'm right that Donald Trump will not be elected president. And I don't think there's even much of a chance that he'll get the Republican nomination. I don't think there's any chance. Here, let me say that unequivocally. Um, currently he has, you know, 25 to 30% of the support from the Republican Party. And that Means that, of course, seventy-five or seventy percent, somewhere between seventy and seventy-five percent of Republicans don't want Donald Trump to be president. They want something, somebody other than Donald Trump. And there are, I think, currently, twelve other candidates. But he is speaking for this sliver of the American culture, and also the sort of ethnocentric cultures of all modern countries. Modern countries don't become modern uniformly. They're centers of gravity. There are probability clouds. There are people at, uh, you know, many ends of the spectrum. But the center of gravity is is the center of gravity. And one of the things that I think that in some ways Donald Trump proves is that the center of gravity of this country is beyond what he's talking about. So let's look at the other side of the spectrum. We have Obama and his speech Sunday night and his strategy... He laid out his strategy again, which is basically to use American intelligence and power short of boots in the ground, short of actual soldiers invading, to support the interests and the parties in Syria and Iraq that are fighting ISIS, including to the degree that there is some overlap, and there's a little bit of a Venn diagram overlap with us and Iran and Russia who also are enemies of ISIS. So that is, this is all a moving target. And when I talk about Obama's strategy, I can feel the eyes roll of my conservative friends. You know, the main talking point, or one of the main talking points in conservative circles is to say that Obama doesn't have a strategy at all. But he does, and he used it, and he talked about it in so many words. It's just not a strategy that traditionalists are used to, because it is indeed in the mold of some version of leading from behind. And leading from behind, it's much maligned as a statement of policy, but it's actually something Obama never said, and I don't think he ever would say because it's been so you know maligned. But I will say that it is a fundamentally integral statement. And that is that it is the expression of the realization that in this life as it is, this world of samsara, this world of suffering, that there are things that are wrong, and some of them can be fixed, and some of them can't be fixed. And in the universe of things that can't be fixed, there's a category of things that can be managed and things that can't be managed. And in that universe of things that can't be managed, there are some things that can be influenced, and some things that can't be influenced. And at some point we realize that there are some things that can't be influenced. There's There are some things that we realize that it's better to do nothing than to do something. I think of the wonderful teachings of the Tao on non-doing that I always love this expression, let non-doing do its thing. And that's something that Obama is bringing to the party, and it feels very, very frightening to people on the right. Uh, After his speech, and actually uh, for the last couple weeks uh, after the Paris attacks and so forth, I've been very sort of chagrined by the response of even middle-of-the-road people That Obama's not doing enough. I I think of uh, Joe Scarborough in in, in Morning Joe, where he has just been uh, relentless, and his criticism of Obama as being feckless and weak and indecisive and ineffective. And I didn't really understand. I mean, I understood what he was talking about, but I didn't agree with it. I really think that Obama's coming from a, you know, kind of a smart place here, not to say that he hasn't made mistakes, all of which I supported in real time, so we can talk about those too, and I have. But that, well, a couple of days ago, Joe Scarborough sort of stopped in the middle of Morning Joe, and he said something that I think really helped me understand what the problem is. He said, Obama leaves me frightened. It's like these people, Malign, malevolent, malevolent forces are aligning and mobilizing against us, and we have a leader who's not doing anything, I'm, I'm afraid. And that really helps me to understand this resistance to this, you know, strategy, this post-ideological strategy that Obama is espousing. And when I think of Obama's strategy of leading from behind— it's a little like parenting and i would ask how many of you who are parents have created the child of your dreams you had an idea of who you your child would be you you wanted them to be that you may feel guilty for them falling short or you falling short you may realize that you yourself have wounded your children and part of their problems are your fault and regardless you're responsible for them and You know, this is an agonizing thing until you realize that your children are not given to you, that you are given to your children, and that, yes, there is an imperative that you guide them. When appropriate, you set limits for them. You give incentives and disincentives. And yes, sometimes, if they are a harm to themselves or others— you have to intervene, sometimes forcibly. And this is true of modern countries and the relationship of modern-slash-postmodern countries to pre-modern countries, to countries who are at the amber stage of development or even the red stage of development, which we see, you know, sort of that unholy mixture of red and amber that is arising in the Middle East. This is ISIS. It's the unholy mixture that creates holy warriors. And, that's, and so, that is an earlier stage. I, I wish I could think of a better comparison between appropriate, intelligent, right-thinking foreign relations and parenting. You know, it, it feels like it's condescending. It makes my own green alarms go off that, you know, how could one country presume to be a parent to another? But From an integral perspective, it's literally true. Every stage of development has a new level of maturity that comes online. This is just the creative force of the the cosmos. And by the time humanity reaches modernity or the orange meme, that is a very important fulcrum in human development. It's when people became pacified or become pacified. And in that way, Modern people are more grown up than traditional and uh, warrior people, than people at the amber and red stage. And that's not an insult any more than it is to say that a 30-year-old is more grown up than a 12-year-old. And that in any intelligent and loving ecosystem, the more grown up person is responsible for the less grown up person. And so we have to have foreign policy that is one way or the other about helping these people who are doing what pre-modern people do, which is having holy wars, that we have to help them do it in a way that um, is—or not do it, avoid it, end it, you know, that we have to influence as best we can to bring these people into the modern world. And, of course, the criticism of Obama— is that he is way too cool in this process. And I think there's an argument for that. I really do. I mean, I think in some ways it's the downside of integral consciousness. He illuminates a downside because, you know, I've said it before, I think Obama is functionally integral. And from an integral perspective when you see the, the sort of larger forces at work and the forces of evolution, and you see that actually the trajectory of human history is bending towards justice, and that we've become ever more pacified, ever more prosperous, ever more intelligent, ever more inclusive, that it's just a little harder to get riled up about something like what happened in San Bernardino. Not because what happened there is not atrocious and worthy of all condemnation and resistance and response, but because we realize that getting riled up about it actually doesn't help. It hurts. And it's a bit of a problem. And sometimes I think that for those of you who are Enneagram enthusiasts, you know, people think that Obama is a nine, he's a one. I'm not sure he's not a five like me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you know, it, it, it it's not that we fives don't want emotional intimacy with other people. We do. We just don't want to have to be there when it happens. And you know, with all apologies to Woody Allen's better joke, I think there's some truth to that. So we're a little little cool on the emotional scale, and people sometimes don't trust that we care. As much as they do. And, you know, we can pretend. I remember there was a time in 2008, somewhere on the campaign trail. I forget the circumstances. It was. I remember it was Pennsylvania. There was some economic thing that happened. And, you know, clearly Obama had been getting advice that he needs to be more angry and more emotional. And he gave this speech where he talked about how it makes me damn mad that something happened. And it was, you know, just hideous. It was fake. It didn't work. So, yes, could somebody who's even more wonderful than Obama manage to pull off a sort of, you know, restrained uh, yet ramped up response to ISIS, as he described in his speech Sunday night? Uh, Could he do that and also connect emotionally with the country? Yeah, there's probably somebody who could do that. But all I can say is in the short term, and by that I mean the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to miss this guy when he's gone. Uh, This incredibly gifted and, yes, wise man uh, that, and again, I'm not arguing that he hasn't made mistakes. I think he has. But the presidency, nothing, no aspect of life on earth is about not making mistakes. That's a fantasy. And so we make our mistakes, we learn, and we move on. And that's what human beings beings or human that's what humanity is doing here particularly modern humanity is doing as we see this sort of wild outbreak of red amber holy warrior culture arising out of the uh, war zone of S- Syria and Iraq so what we're seeing that I think we can take some heart in is that aside from Donald Trump and I guess you could say Lindsey Graham, who I, you know I kind of at least appreciate his honesty. I mean, Lindsey Graham's saying we ought to invade with you know, up to 40, 50,000 troops. Um, and Ted Cruz is talking about we should carpet bomb them. So you know there, there's some arguments that are outside the 40 yard line. But for the most part, everybody's in general agreement with Obama's proposals, which are Obama's strategy which ranges from coalition airstrikes against ISIS, beefing up intelligence about potential terrorists. And, you know, what's up in the air is should we have a no-fly zone? Should we arm the Kurds? And um, these aren't details, but these are still within the 40-yard lines of both Republicans and Democrats, aside from the few outliers. In fact, there was uh, an article in today's Washington Post I got a kick out of. Uh, It was titled, The GOP's New Strategy to Fight the Islamic State, Kill Them with Clichés. And they said that House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy opined that we want our homeland to be secure, while Majority Whip Steve Scalise spoke of the need to, quote, go and root out and take on ISIS, unquote. Kathy McMorris Rogers, the number four Republican leader, proclaimed that we must, quote, Rise to the challenge, unquote, and find, quote, the courage and the resolve. And Representative Lynn Jenkins of Kansas announced that we must, quote, stand shoulder to shoulder with France and our allies and show a path forward as we fight for a safer world for our kids to grow up in. You know, that's all in the same territory. None of them, aside from the few outliers that I mentioned, are arguing for boots on the ground. So, we muddle forward. And I will say that there is a spectrum of responses that are on the table depending on the spectrum of the uh, downsides of the attacks on us. I mean, we have these, at least one of these terrorists were homegrown, and one of them from the Middle East, uh, ISIS-inspired, ISIS-directed, a uh, small attack, In of 14 people. If there's a larger attack, there will be a larger response. If there is a chemical or nuclear attack, there will be a huge response. This is just the way the world works. And so, you know, there's a certain e- ecology to uh, foreign affairs. And, you know, if there's a large chemical or nuclear attack, there will be some version, some, you know, modern version of a siege that will be laid on the ISIS state, the caliphate, where we will probably surround them, invite people to leave, and decimate the country that is, um, you know, causing this kind of trouble. We won't talk—modernity will only take so much. So, you know, of course— What's interesting is from the pre-modern perspective, in the sort of red perspective of ISIS, they're looking for an apocalypse. And so we play into their hand. But at some point, it's like, so what? So you wanted us to come get you? Here we are, bang, you're dead. And I think that, um, you know, I hope it doesn't come to that. But um, I will say that there was one part of Obama's speech that I do disagree with where he was talking about we can't occupy these foreign countries and force them into modernity and you know there's some truth to that but we can see that actually we can do that we we have done that we did that in Iraq i mean and we've learned you know a ton about how not to do it from iraq but it's not a bad skill for modernity to have to actually go in and forcibly pacify a country that's in civil war or completely out of control. It just can't be the U.S. doing it anymore, not in the way that we did it before. It has to be a joint effort of modernity itself. And we've seen that. You know, we saw that with George H.W. Bush in the first Gulf War. And we've, we've, we've seen it all along. But by Obama not just rushing in uh, and creating a vacuum, you know, the the, the vacuum that is so much derided and so fearful to people on Fox News, that other forces do come in and fill that vacuum, including Arabs, who have to be the ones who are dealing with each other in the final analysis. Now, the other piece of the puzzle is, um, and this is something that I've wondered about this whole time. And finally, people are talking about it. I guess they probably were all along, but it never really got to the mainstream media, at least not got my attention. And that is, how is it that we allow ISIS to use the internet and social media? I mean, you know, come on, it's our internet. And by that, I mean, it's modernity's internet. Science and technology built the internet. I mean the, the the science technology of ISIS, uh, you know. I mean, if they didn't have, if they weren't able to borrow modern technology, they'd be right up there with, you know, rubbing sticks together. I mean, they haven't created much of anything, and that they are able to use Twitter and Facebook and uh, the internet. I just don't quite understand. It's not like the internet is not controllable. China controls it. Turkey controls it. People control it. The, the child pornography is well-controlled. And finally, I hear Obama talked about it, and Hillary Clinton talked about it, that you know there are really, in a sense, two territories on which we're fighting this war. One is the territory on the ground, which is where we have people and bombs and no-fly zones and soldiers and all of that stuff. But there's also a virtual territory. And this is created in the internet. That That territory is real. It's in an in interior territory that, from an integral perspective, represents the left-hand quadrants. And that that territory cannot be succeeded to the uh, enemy. And so we're seeing, and I, I saw a, a good long article today in the New York Times about how um, we can uh, work government can work with the, the private enterprise, uh, the, the, you know Facebook and Google and 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 Twitter and so forth, to control this. And that we're just really in the first throes of making that happen. Now there's always that polarity between security and freedom, between security and privacy. But when those two come into conflict and people feel afraid, they're going to naturally go to security. I mean, people are ultimately very, you know, we have our ideologies, we have our constitutions, we have our, you know, declarations, we have all of our laws, and and we also have common sense. And as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, the great Supreme Court justice said, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And when necessary, we will, you know... Uh, uh, Adjust things, and we've seen that in in, in past history. And um, and I actually don't think that there's a problem in terms of the Constitution because the social media is owned and managed by private companies. And of course, there'll be pressure on them, and and they've resisted it. But um, people get used to the surveillance state because and, and actually get comfortable with it because one of the other things we realize is that when Cultures become modern. The government, the people in charge are no longer invested in controlling the population. You know, oppressing the population is no longer part of the agenda. And so we can actually trust that. We can trust that um, government can be in our business and in a way that is really looking to protect us and not oppress us. So we'll see how that goes. All right. God, I've been blabbing for 53 minutes, huh? We're having a good chat on the uh, page too. Oh, cool. You're talking about the the liberal response or one of the liberal responses, and actually Obama emphasized this a lot, which is gun control. And uh, as Corey writes, the problem is we have a number of systemic issues with violence all of which overlap with our overall gun problem, and none of which can be really conflated with the others. One is mental illness. Two, police abuse. Three, Islamic terrorism. Four, domestic terrorism. Five, school shootings. Six, black-on-black violence. And liberals think they can fix all of these with gun control, which I think is naive. And conservatives, conservatives think we needn't bother fixing any one of them until we fix them all, which is suicidal. And, you know, I think there's a lot of intelligence to that. And, of course, there's a lot to talk about in there when we talk about police abuse and, you know, black and black violence and all of that sort of thing. But the horse is out of the barn here. We now have as many guns in America as we have people, somewhere over 300 million of each. And there's not going to be a confiscation. It's actually astonishing how little gun violence we have considering the number of guns. And a lot of gun violence that we have in America is actually suicides. But even with the mass shootings that we've seen in uh, the, 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 the kindergarten, in where was it, in, in New England, in, in Connecticut, and in Columbine, and the, the theater shootings, and what we just saw, uh, gun violence is actually something around half of what it was in 1990. So we have two things happening. One is with all these extra guns, we actually have less gun violence and we have a acceleration of these high profile, um, politically motivated attacks or, you know, not even politically motivated in the case of the kindergarten shooting. I mean, it was just a nut. God bless all of us, you know. I mean, that was just such a heartbreaking thing. So getting rid of, I mean, can we work around the edges with assault weapons and, uh, you know, these armor-piercing bullets and gun shows? Yes. Uh, But are we going to take guns away? It's not going to happen. And I'm not sure it's even necessary. Okay, well, let's just wind that up for now. This is going to be the last of the live shows for the season, and we're going to go into the holiday now. Actually, next Tuesday night is the Republican debate, so we should all listen to that. Uh, That's on the 15th. But we'll be back with another live Daily Evolver show on January 5th, Tuesday night, January 5th, where we'll continue to look at the ever-unfolding state of affairs in this world, in this world of samsara. In the meantime a quick holiday message. And that is to use this, it's, it's such a beautiful time of year. I mean, I can see it in Boulder. I mean, it's, you'll excuse me for a, a little Northern hemisphere imperialism here. But, uh, you know, it's, we're on the close to the shortest day of the year now. And all the lights are twinkling, and it's cold. And there's a certain kind of, you know, uh, emotional uh, sort of louche so sort of the feeling of the the season that I think, you know, all we ask from a, you know, contemplative point of view uh, is to just notice what's going on and to notice that this time of year is really about, whether it's Christmas or the solstice or whatever it is, it's about renewal and it's about enchantment and it's about the birth of the baby and about renewal. And so as a practice, it is a time for me, and this is why I'm looking forward to really quieting down a bit for the next few weeks, a time to recognize that life is enchanted, that we are living in a world where every moment is an opportunity for new creativity, for a new expression of who we are. And this is true since the first millisecond of the Big Bang, which is a creative act. And uh, that the materialistic view that we are, you know, living in a world where there's no such thing as free will or love or connection and our behavior is a result of some set of involuntary calculations of cost and benefit by our genes and biological forces that, you know, let's set that aside. And just as a thought experiment and a heart experiment, assume that we are living in a world where there is a loving intelligence that kicked it off and continues to take us to ever- new unfoldings of goodness, truth, and beauty, and that while we are living our lives, that we are also being lived by life. Just a thought for a practice as we move into this beautiful season devoted to love and renewal.
2: Hi, Jeff. I just wanted to say I just seen your new uh, webpage, and I really, really like it.
1: Hey, Jeff. Mark Evans here. On a recent podcast, you were talking about it being hard for Buddhists to believe in a loving God. My personality type is Buddhist. It was easy for me to follow Ken Wilber. But back in Tennessee, all the Buddhist groups were new age, but there were these people running contemplative outreach, centering prayer groups, and they were the best non dual, not exactly integral, practice groups in Knoxville. And I met with them for about five years. And I went into it with that cold belief in no love out there. But after five years of regular centering prayer, I started to have a God that I loved, that loved me. What a surprise!
2: This is J.P., calling from Finland. I just wanted to let you know that uh, yesterday was a big publishing event, at least for us. We published a theme issue on Europe thinking uh, on this uh, journal called Approaching Religion. So it's a peer-reviewed journal. The theme issue is called Systems Thinking, Spirituality and Wisdom, Perspectives on Ken Wilber. So I just thought I'd, I'd let you know uh, what we're up to here in Finland. So the interval is creeping slowly into the academia. I'm, I'm very pleased. Hi, Jeff. This is Frank from Germany, Berlin. I'm very grateful for what you're doing. And you're always also training my perspective range on uh, an integral view on what is happening in the world. This is really enriching my daily life. Now when I was listening to your show on the 21st of November, that Saturday, on the uh, Holy War on Modernity, I was fascinated by the viewpoints that you took and the numbers you've been telling. were not true. Germany is not taking 100,000 refugees, it's taking this year 1.5 million refugees. We are taking the risk that some of those jihadists will be coming into the country, yes, And the question is, if a society that is awake cannot really rationalize this also, that how probable is it that I will be hit by terrorists? Probably more more probable than than winning in a lottery. It would be in proportion three and a half times of 1.5 million that the U.S. would be taking then, that this is like 6 million, which is stunning. What is the compassion that we have... If we see that there are millions of refugees, people that are running away from ISIS, of being slaughtered, and we ask ourselves, are we taking them in and maybe even also one, two of those jihadists? So the question is how much of our compassion is really part of our daily life? And uh, taking terror into the US, being afraid uh, when taking ten thousands in. Then I'm asking myself, what is with all those terror that you are having every day, like 100 uh, attacks of your own people in your schools in your malls that is taking place every third day. So this terror is there. It seems to be a blind spot.
0: All right, folks. Well, that's it for the Daily Evolver Live tonight. Uh, again, we'll see you on Tuesday, January 5th. We will be posting regularly on the site dailyevolver.com and integral life is still uh, will still be happening through the holiday so uh, check in on all of that and uh, keep it integral and have a great great uh, holiday season we will see you in the new year this is jeff salzman signing off